Because of the series that uh, we've selected in Nehemiah, I'm not able to spend a lot of time. Last week I focused on a specific verse that, that I have identified, I don't know if others do, as the, as, the, as the vision casting or almost the theme or thesis verse of the book of Nehemiah. And if, for those of you who are part of small groups, you know that the, the material covered an awful lot more text than that one verse that I looked at last week where we looked at what has your God or what is my God, not just God, what is my God uh, put on my heart, put on your hearts to do in Nehemiah's case for Jerusalem, but in your and my case for his people. What has your God put on your heart to do for his people? That's what we focused on last week. No sooner do we get to unpack that that we run into a hurdle. And boy, is chapter 5 of Nehemiah a bit of a hurdle. So uh, I recognize we actually even shortened the text for this morning. To, for those of you who are doing this small group study, you'll notice that the text that's listed there is less than what is in your material. Um, we had to shorten it because of the length of it. Um, and, and by some assessments, it's still kind of long. So while I would do this morning what I typically do and invite those of us who are able and willing to stand, I recognize for those of you who have been standing enough already this morning, uh, if, you've, uh, if this is too long for you, I certainly understand that. But for those of you who are able and willing, won't you please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Now, there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage. And yes, that means exactly what you think it means. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very... I, I need you to say it with me. Okay, because that's one of those words that we have troubles saying, but I needed us to put it on our, our, our lips this morning. I'm going to get back to it. I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. Please, 
Give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and their hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to to that promise. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. May God add his blessing on the reading of his word this morning. Thank you for standing with me. appreciate that. I'm glad you had something to lean against as you did that, Chris. appreciate that. I have to be careful this morning because this passage uh, cuts just a little bit too close to my heart. So i got to own that from the beginning. And so if I lose track of the clock and I ramble on till mid-afternoon, you can just get up and walk out on me. I'll still love you, I promise. Okay, my hope is that you caught the way that sounded, because it is exactly the way it sounded. For a nation, you're way ahead of me, aren't you? Foreign, you're, you're always sitting on your head. I can tell you're way ahead of me. Foreign nation comes into Israel, trashes the place, destroys the city of God, levels the temple, kills whatever they want to kill because they can. To the victor belongs the... And so that's exactly what they did. They kept the best, carted it off to their kingdom to the east. First Assyria, then Babylon. The best and the brightest of God's possession is now in captivity under pagan kings. And I'm carefully choosing my words because of painting this picture exactly the way that Nehemiah 5 is not pulling any punches either to paint this picture. By God's grace and good pleasure and the Spirit's leading and timing, a group returns before Nehemiah under Zerubbabel and Ezra. If you ever read the book before Nehemiah, we've already mentioned that that's the book where they came back under pagan kings with pagan blessing and pagan financing. And they came back and they rebuilt the temple. Right? They're smart people. If you read this in Ezra, while they're rebuilding the temple, they notice that the temple, and all you have to do is go to Israel today, and it'll still show you this, is built up against part of the city wall. So in a, in a sly kind of shenanigan sort of way, they started rebuilding the wall around the temple, and then all, everybody started taking notice of that, the enemies of the Jews, and said, stop. You're not doing what the kid gave you permission to do. And they got their, got their wrist slapped. So by the end of the book of Ezra, we've got the temple rebuilt and the wall not. Word gets back to the pagan king where Nehemiah happens to be serving in his office with cup-bearing. Goes to the king one day, we covered this already, 
Goes to the king one day, he's sad. The king says, what's up? Nehemiah says, hey, why should I not be sad? My city is in ruins. And so the king again finances the whole bit for them to go back to Israel and to finish building this wall. Gave him letters. So this time when people stand up and say you shouldn't do that, Nehemiah gets to pull out the letters and say, look, I can. And he did. So what does he run up against? The enemies know their place. One letter tells them, you have no place here. And as Nehemiah, the one who his God has laid on his heart what to do for his people, is motivated to give up a lot, not everything, but he gave up a lot, so that his people, God's people, could live securely and safely and confidently worshiping their God. And so while he's standing there waving this letter in front of the Sanballats and the Tobias, for those of you who are in the groups, you reckon you've come upon them in chapter 4, right? By the time you get to the end of chapter 4, that wall is half built. We're on our way, right? Vision is being captured, right? The hurdles are being jumped, right? It's almost coming together. By the time you get to the end of chapter 6, the wall is built. And here in chapter 5, what do we run against? While Nehemiah is shaking the letter in front of the Sambalats and the Tobias, you're selling each other into slavery. Now, I don't know how you would take that. And this is why it's too close to my heart. Because I, I identify with Nehemiah. I'm kind of a Nehemiah kind of guy. At least I presume to be a Nehemiah kind of guy. I like to think that my life is about discerning what my God has laid on my heart to do for his people. And then when I'm up in front of his people, waving in front of everybody else's face, you keep your hands off of these people. I've got some work to do. You're all selling each other into slavery. And, and it makes me wonder, what am I doing this for? <laughs> what am I doing this for? You're all selling each other into slavery. I got this wall half built. I got God's vision that He has laid on my heart to do for you. Up and running. We're almost there. We've crossed the halfway mark. We've held our enemies at bay. And you're, you're, you're exacting usury against each other. That's how the slavery came about. And so Nehemiah deals with it. And I'd like to talk with you a little bit about how I see Nehemiah dealing with it. Fortunately, the story has a happy ending. You've all heard this phrase. Life liberty and in fact finish it for me life liberty and yeah except that's half right this phrase is found where only high school did our high school kids leave with the with the kid this phrase is found where not in the bible i'll let you know that it's not found in the bible it is not found in the u.s constitution it is found in the declaration of independence uh, the constitution hadn't been written yet and it's found in the Declaration of Independence because a committee of people got together and decided, back during, before we were a nation, decided that we had certain unalienable rights. Okay, you're all way ahead of me again. We had certain unalienable, un, unalienable rights, among which included life, 
liberty and no. I know that's what ended up in the declaration. The history buffs in the room are doing me a favor of not saying anything because I know you're already way ahead of me and you know where I'm going with this. But no, it's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's, when the, that's what's in the Declaration of Independence. But that's what happens when you pull a committee of people together and you come up with phraseology that everybody can approve. The original... Life, liberty, and property. Now, fortunately, this particular committee of people that got together and said, we can say that better, was right. <laughs> and I think that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness resonates a whole lot better in terms of a rallying cry to start a revolution than life, liberty, and property. But the people who wrote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness knew the guy who wrote before them the phrase life, liberty, and property. Anybody know his name? guy by the name of John Locke. Yes, the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness you and I owe to a philosopher. A philosopher who, by the way, was a good friend of a guy by the name of William Penn. And you and I get to live in a state, excuse me, a commonwealth today uh, that was fashioned largely because of our founder's relationship with a guy by the name of John Locke who knew that the phrase is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but life, liberty, and the pursuit of property ownership. Well, why in the world am I making this big deal? I'm making this big deal because three or 400 years later, we were a colony long before we became a nation. We've lost touch with what Nehemiah chapter 5 is talking about. And from Nehemiah chapter 5 until people like John Locke had the audacity to speak, there was this thing called property ownership that belonged to a certain person called the king. Not you and not me. And because the king owned all the property, he owned everybody. And there was starting to be a sense of, hey, it's got to be better than this by the time John Locke lived. And John Locke had the audacity to write stuff like, we've got these rights that God gave us. They're unalienable. You can't take them away from me. Along, among those rights is life, liberty, and the right to own property. Well, guess who didn't like that? The king. So the king sent him into exile. And guess who got him out? William Penn. <laughs> William Penn sent a letter to the king. He said, hey. You don't know me, but you know my dad. I think we should cut this. I'm obviously simplifying. I think we should cut this guy a break. In the name of the God you claim to serve. In the name of the God you claim to represent. I think we should cut John Locke a break. 
So he released John Locke and remembered his debt that he owed William Penn's father. And how did he pay off the debt that he owed William Penn's father? Here's some of my land over in the New World. You and I know it as Penn's Woods, which comes with a Latin phrase, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is Latin for Penn's Woods. One of the first times in human Western, certainly Western civilization, human history, that private land ownership began because a king who owned all the land said, here, you can have some of my land. And they called it Penn's Woods or Pennsylvania. And then William Penn came over here. What's the first thing he did? He started carving up vast chunks of his land and started deeding it to commoners like you and like me. And to this day, we all get to participate in something. You and I were talking about this in my office earlier this morning. Today, we get to participate in something that is just a few hundred short years' existence in human history. What does this have to do with Nehemiah? The people were in bondage because they didn't own the land in the way that you and I talk about land ownership. The people were in bondage because they couldn't pursue happiness because they didn't own the land on which they lived. The people were in bondage because all it took was one famine to come along. No Walmart down the street. You either had a harvest that year or you went hungry between harvests. And if you went hungry between harvests, you were reliant on the people who had silos that had more grain in them. You had to buy your grain from them instead of pulling it from your own storage. That was it. That was your option. And by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 5, a famine, did you notice that? A famine had settled in. The grain stocks in each person's home was dwindling, disappearing. What do you have to buy grain with? Sons and daughters. We all knew what the sons were sold off for. Farm help. So the Kevins of the world got to make grain not for you, but for the guy who you had to buy grain from. Sometimes the king. But as the point of Nehemiah chapter 5 is talking about, Follow brother. Because I'm, I'm a guy who was smart enough to build a silo bigger than what I needed for a day. And so I knew a famine was going to come along. And now that you're in a, a tough spot, you, you work for me now. And what's going to happen next year? How much grain is he going to have to put in his, in his kitchen? Less? Why? Because Kevin's working for me. Is he going to help? Now, what happens to me next year? Do I have more grain to put in my kitchen or, or my silos or less grain? I have more because i got to help. And the pot gets sweetened because some of you have daughters. And we'll let the rest go to what you think uh, they might be sold for. And yes, that's what the daughters were sold for. And here's the part of that that Nehemiah gets, what's the word? Angry about 
we're both children of God. I expect a pagan king to do this. He's pagan. We're brothers in the Lord. We're, we're sons of Yah. And yet, I'm taking God's commands, chucking them for my benefit, because I'm a clever enough lad to think to build a silo whenever there's plenty, and then using it against God's children when there's a famine. So that gets us to where, and you can see why this is close to my heart, that gets us to where I think this chapter is all about this morning. Steps to justice. I got three that I see in this passage. Some of this comes right from the material for those of you who are in small group. First of all is anger. Verse six. Well, my dear land's sakes, I was very angry when I heard about this outcry and these words. Particularly angry. Because as true as it is that in terms of Western civilization at least, much of human history, land ownership stayed in the hands of the royalty. There was one example where that wasn't the case that goes the whole way back to the Old Testament when Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land and he divided them up, divided the land up amongst the 12 tribes and then the 12 tribes divided the land among the families. One of the, it's a very progressive concept. One of the first times in any of human history, east or west, where we see land ownership in other people's hands besides royalty. And so these guys were supposed to know better. These guys were supposed to know better. And they were keeping land ownership in the hands of the few. I was angry. I was angry about this. Now, rightly, you're all going to say, and hopefully you are having troubles with this because we should have troubles with this, the Bible doesn't want us to be angry, right? Or mostly yes, that's correct. The Bible doesn't want us to be angry, largely because we don't know how to do it right. And because you don't know how to be angry right, we kind of settle for doing angry wrong. But even in the New Testament, uh-oh, one of those, did I mess up? Because there's a thing between there that I thought was going to go in. But that's all right, I'm good. Even, uh, even in the New Testament, there's a Bible verse, and you all know it. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Excuse me. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. And uh, you're going to finish this one for me too. I, was going, I thought I programmed some help in there, but I didn't. Be angry and... Okay, okay, so you, you get it. You get it. And the way that you're angry and sin not in Ephesians chapter 4 is be angry and sin not because it goes on to say, take care of your anger before what happens? Before the, before the sun goes down. Yeah, exactly. So the steps to justice... Number one, when you see injustice, your first response gets to be Nehemiah's first response. Anger. <laughs> and the, the point isn't whether or not you're angry. You are. Anytime injustice happens, it's my hope that we as the children of God do exactly what the children of God did in Nehemiah chapter 5. And that's express anger. Chapter 5, verse 1. There was a great outcry of the people. And who? I, I can't let this part go without being said. Great cry, uh, outcry among the people and of their... Now, any one of you, <laughs> any one of you 
who thinks the Bible has it out for women have obviously not read the Bible. Any place else in society, anywhere else on the globe, any, especially at that time, never would you have read in anywhere outcry among the people, dot, 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 and their wives. Except one place, right here. I will grant you that the Bible is written in a time when women were property. But it was written at a time when women were property and the light of the gospel shone bright even before Jesus walked on the earth. You're not going to find anywhere else where the women have a voice. And now why would they be the ones with a voice? In verse 1? Because in verse 5, they were the ones who were being sold for fill in the blank. And they weren't the ones being sold for fill in the blank by pagans. They were the ones being sold for fill in the blank by fellow Israelites. It's the grace-empowering gospel that gives them a voice to say, enough! This can't be happening amongst the people who name the name of Yah. Nehemiah, chapter 5. The women spoke. Steps to injustice. You cry out in anger. I would be so bold as to suggest that you don't just cry out in anger when you see injustice, but you do it quick, maybe even before the sun goes down. Amen? Now, action. Verses 7 to 12 of Nehemiah chapter 5 showed the action that Nehemiah was willing to go through in order to make this correct. He said, stop exacting usury. I think you and I know what that means, but it has another term that's more current. Anybody care to take a stab at what the, ter- the current term for usury is? Interest. Interest. Now, di- different people are going to say that usury means excessive interest, um, not just the concept of interest. How as true as that is, from a historical perspective, the term usury and the term interest used to be the same. Just just the very concept of charging interest was defined as usury. It quickly became excessive. And so today you and I know the definition of usury as excessive interest. It is just like those of us, I'll pretend to be the guy who had the silo again. It's just like those of us who are the haves. And you guys, you guys pretend you're the have-nots for just a second. I don't ever get to say this for real. It's typically the other way around. But for illustration's sake, let me be the have and you be the have-nots. Once I discover the leverage I have, how quickly will I continue exp- exponentially increasing my leverage? Very quickly. Once I've got you over a barrel... That's where I intend to keep you. And so interest became very excessive right away. It's one of the reasons why we developed rules about not keeping or not letting interest get out of hand is because too quickly interest can do that. So steps to act, steps to injustice. First of all, you're angry. You cry out in anger. Secondly, you take action. 
Something has to be done to keep the leverage from being against the very people of God. And so Nehemiah stood up and he said, stop charging interest. Period. At at that point, it wasn't excessive. It was just interest. Period. And here's why it's interest. Period. I didn't didn't instruct whoever it is that programmed this to go up here for Luke chapter 2. Who did that? The, The widow's might? Who, who, who made that call? Here's, well, I know who made that call. The Spirit made that call because it's a perfect sermon illustration. Did anybody catch the end of the verse about the widow's mite? Jesus, he was watching. People put money in the box in the back. And he saw the widow who put two cents, two mites in there. And he said, this is the greatest one of all. Why was it the greatest one in Jesus' mind? Why was that the greatest one of all? Because it was what? All she had to live on. All she had to live on. The Walmarts are still, even in Jesus' day, not just down the street. But she had a couple cents to go to the guy with the silo. I'm out of grain. And she didn't have to sell herself. Because she had a couple mites. And Jesus saw that she, as she was walking out of church on Saturday, he saw that she dropped that last chance that she had to keep from having to sell herself for the sake of the kingdom. And so here is what's going on in Jesus' day with the might, in Nehemiah's day with the usury. Do we trust in our money to be what provides us with what we need? Or do we trust in our God to provide us with what it is that we need? To such a degree, no sermon illustrations, the cutesiness just kind of drops out at this point, but for real life, I'm the widow who drops the last that I have in that bucket today because I know that tomorrow, my God will provide for me. Amen? When Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, he meant, give us this day For real. And so here's the people of God. Leveraging the people of God to make money rather than being the people of God who say, I've got the silo. Remember? I'm the the have. You're the have not. I have this in my silo not because I'm clever, people of God. I have this in my silo because God has blessed us in times of plenty. And he gave me the ability to build the silo. And he gave me the ability to stack it in here because he knew there was going to be times where there was famine and he needed some of us to have the integrity of faith to be able to know that when those times came, I'm opening up my silos because God is the one who put it there. Amen? And now you don't have to sell Kevin as much as I'd love to have him come work for me. <laughs> and you don't have to sell your daughters. Now because God has provided, we all have our needs met. That's the action we're talking about when injustice reaches our lands. Anger, action, and to go back where we started, 
our hour is well spent. To go back where we started, no good constitution comes without amendments. And so verse 13 is the amendment of society. Hey, I shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake everyone, every man, from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise, this promise that we're going to share God's blessing amongst us as God's people. That's the promise that Nehemiah exacted from the people who were the haves. Stop leveraging people who are stuck over a barrel and then pretend to, to claim them as fellow children of God. You promise now to make sure that the blessings that God has given you are blessings you're going to share amongst God's children. Promise it. And they did. And all the assembly said amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did according to the promise. This was written over 2,000 years ago. And it's as relevant as today, isn't it? It's as relevant as today. There ain't no law that'll be written in any land, whether by Democrats or by Republicans or by a partnership between the two. It's going to provide what only God can provide. And that's a heartfelt desire to take what God has already blessed us with and share it. In a spirit-led way, of course, in a God-honoring way, in a kingdom-building way, in a radical kind of way, where we can say to the lawmakers, we got this. We got this. We're the children of God, and he has abundantly provided. And so, how is it? You want your God to, quote, remember you. At the end of the chapter, we've got Nehemiah praying again. Here he goes, Mr. Prayer Warrior. He's praying again, and he says, Remember me, oh my God, for this that I've done for your people. He wasn't boasting. He wasn't boasting at all. He was asking God to do something very profound. Remember me, oh God. It's an idiom. There's a judgment day coming. And Nehemiah knows it. And whenever that judge opens those books, he wants that judge to remember. Not how wonderful Nehemiah was, but how obedient Nehemiah was. Remember me, O God. Remember that the vision, the passion that you, my God, put onto my heart to do for your people. I obeyed. So how is it that you want your God to remember you? My prayer, my, my passionate and fervent prayer is your pastor. Whether I'm here for a few more months or whether I'm here till Jesus comes back. You guys, <laughs> centuries, yes. We'll let, we'll, let that up, we'll let that up to the leading of the Spirit. My prayer is that it will be as one who having done all that you can do to bear witness for the gospel. My prayer as your pastor is that you are one who stood for justice on behalf of God's people. You willing to do that? If so, and I don't mean this to be perfunctory. In fact, if you can't say yes to this, I'm going to ask that you don't stand. 
And then at the end, I'll ask everybody to stand as we sing together. But if it is your intention to stand with me as one who desires to seek justice on behalf of all of God's people, would you please stand? And then I'd invite the rest to stand with us as well. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for passages of Scripture like this. You had a perfect opportunity to make things look lily-white whenever you inspired this to be written down, and you didn't take it. You let the reality of what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 5 be captured in print so that thousands of years later, we as your children could open it up and respond in utter disbelief that that's what your children were doing to one another. And yet you, in your grace, give us one more opportunity to stand and say, not this time. It's not going to happen on my watch. You have blessed us abundantly beyond what we could ask or imagine. Give us the courage to be like the widow who's willing to give up what we think are our last two mites, believing that you will still meet us at our point of need. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the praise and the glory and the thanks that you and you alone are worthy of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.